Hopefully by the end of the night, after two weeks down, we'll be done with one book of the 39. So that's the goal. That's not a pace that I know you like, but it'll speed up after that. Genesis is an important book, so that's all we're going to take time to cover today. 30,000 foot view, some important things to rethink and talk about. So many of these things, as I said last time, will overlap with bibliology or theology proper or anthropology, things we've taught over the last 10 years from this platform. So be sure as a question rises to ask yourself the question, does this relate to the authenticity of the Bible? Does this relate to God's creative work in nature? Does this relate to uh, the work of God's spirit? Those are the kinds of things that will send you to the right series to get the answers that have been addressed at length and other lectures. So let's talk about the authorship of Genesis. As we think through the authorship of Genesis, you need to understand that this is a part of a larger body of work. It's a part of five books. Hopefully that's not new to you. The five books that we speak of in this series, talk about Genesis, you really need to talk about all five, the first five books of the Old Testament. We call it the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is a compound word in Latin. We get it from Latin as we got many things through the old Latin translation and Jerome's translation, the Vulgate, and a lot of the names and titles came from that. Pentateuch is the word for five, penta, hopefully we recognize that Latin root, and tuch is the uh, word that we can get book out of modern day or in old times, the scroll. So the five scrolls, when you speak of the Pentateuch, we're talking about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the heading of Torah. Let's jot that word down, Torah. Torah is a Hebrew word. So you'll hear the word Torah used not only in Jewish context, which of course that's how they speak of it in Jewish context, but in Christian context because that's the way we find the New Testament even referring to the writing of the first five books of the Old Testament. Torah, we translate it law, but it's a much broader and richer word in Hebrew than that. It really has the idea of direction or giving instruction. Uh, You would be educated in the instruction of Moses. That sometimes is even in the context a better translation than law. Of course, it's authoritative because it comes from God through his prophets. So law is not a bad translation. It's just much richer and broader than that. Torah, the law. When we speak of the Torah, when you hear a Jewish person speak of the Torah, we're speaking of the first five books of the Bible, often called the Pentateuch. They're also called the books of Moses or the law of Moses. The books of Moses or the law of Moses, which helps us, of course, get some clarity about what the Bible likes to say about its authorship, these books. I'll give you one example here, Joshua chapter 8, verse 31. Just as soon as the Pentateuch was written, as soon as the Torah was written, as soon as the first book of the Bible was written, Joshua here uh, is describing, just as uh, Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, so it was written in the book of the law of Moses. So even as Joshua is continuing to refer back to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then Joshua is next looking back at that set of books, the books of Moses, and calls it the books that come from Moses, the books that the content that Moses gave the people, commanded the people, and called the book of the law of Moses. In the New Testament, the biblical claim, just to give us that sense that the one who rose from the dead and certainly has authority to speak to things biblical, uh, Jesus liked to refer to the books of Moses by Moses' name, as it says, and I showed you this verse last time as we talked about the Jewish traditional Jewish breakdown of the canon, and that he says, everything written about me, Christ says, in the law of Moses, that's the first five books, the prophets and the writings here 
given the label Psalms, because in the Jewish canon, Psalms was the first book in the category of the writings. So Moses, prophets, and Psalms must be fulfilled. So that whole set of the Bible, those first five books, the Pentateuch, or the law of the Old Testament, is given the name simply Moses, the law of Moses. Mark chapter 7, verse 10, goes further than just giving it a title and appending a name to it. Uh, Look how Jesus put it here. These are the words of Christ. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Here's the law given in the Old Testament. Jesus says this comes from Moses. He even uses that verb to say, or Moses said, and that is what we are used to seeing in the New Testament. So the authorship of Moses. Well, if you read through the first five books of Moses, you will come to a passage like Deuteronomy 34, which says, so the servant which is the last chapter, by the way, of Deuteronomy. So the servant of the Lord died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and they buried him in the valley of the land of Moab opposite of Beth Peor, and no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Now, a lot of the biblical writers you'll find, John himself in the New Testament, 1,500 years later, still likes to refer to himself in the text that he writes in the third person. That's not unusual at all for Hebrew literature, or even New Testament literature in a Greco-Roman situation in literature. But when you get to a passage that speaks in the third person, about yourself having died and no one knowing where you're buried, clearly we understand a passage like this being, this is probably probably not the words of Moses. So excluding this chapter, which we assume is written by Joshua, we certainly can't squeeze everything into Moses's pen in the last chapter of Deuteronomy. Now this opened up a door for people to say, well, if Deuteronomy 34, which is part of the books of Moses, is not Moses writing it, which it doesn't seem logical that Moses would be writing in the past tense about his own death and his burial, well, then maybe he didn't write any of this, which brought up another question. The second thing we need to ask about is something called the documentary hypothesis. The documentary hypothesis. And if you read anything on the book of Genesis or the Pentateuch, uh, you may be familiar with this under the heading, the J-E-D-P theory. J-E-D-P theory. It was popularized in the 19th century where a lot of heresy came out of in the theological seminaries of the day in the 19th century, the German seminaries. Julius Wellhausen wrote a theory about the fact that the Pentateuch was not written by Moses. He said one of the main reasons we have to look for another author for for Genesis through Deuteronomy is because Moses couldn't possibly written something because there was no writing in the 15th century before Christ. So if he comes out of Egypt in the uh, mid-15th century, as we said last week, to give us that time frame, 1445 B.C., Moses couldn't. I don't care how much time he had sitting around in the desert. He couldn't write this because there was no writing back then. And so he took off on a theory. So Julius Wellenhausen said, here's what we think. This was compiled and put together primarily the work of four different authors. Somewhere between the 9th and 5th century, and as long as you're using your imagination, you can guess any time you want, I suppose. He had no proof for this, but he said probably around that time, he theorized, so maybe 800 to 1,000 years after when it actually was written, it was compiled. And it was compiled by four different authors. And the reason it's called the JEDP theory is because every time he saw sections of the scripture that preferred God's proper name, which is now how we would say it, his proper name, Yahweh, Well, we're going to assign that to a particular kind of writer, because a particular kind of writer, if he's going to speak about God, would probably use a consistent word as it relates to God. So we're going to put that all under a category when we see the author talking about God in terms of Yahweh. It's a J because how it had been taken into English, of course, and conflated with the vowels as it relates to Adonai. We got the word Jehovah. So back in the day, they would have said the Jehovah material, the Jehovah material written by the author 
that we're going to say is one primary author, and the compilers took from that information and put this thing together in the 9th to 5th century. So he preferred the word Jehovah or Yahweh. The other times we see, which is a lot of times, we see both Yahweh and Elohim a lot, but Elohim a lot right out of the gate. They're going to say that's an author that uses the word for God, Elohim. We're going to say that's a different author. So when someone refers to God by Yahweh, that's one author. We see the tendency to use the word Elohim, which is the generic word for God in the Old Testament. Uh, Well, then we're going to assign that to another author. Now, Deuteronomy seems like a pretty concise whole. It's even called the second giving of the law. It seems like it would make sense in a biblical context to say that Moses sat down and summarized and expanded upon the details under the inspiration of God's spirit and would, that makes sense, that it would all be a cohesive whole. But they said, well, that one looks pretty cohesive. Let's just say there was an author that wrote Deuteronomy. Primarily, that's the theory. So the author of Deuteronomy, we'll call that the D author. And then the P author, there's all that stuff about cleanliness and clean and unclean and the sacrifices in the priesthood and what you ought to do in the tabernacle and later in the temple as all these instructions came together. We'll call that person the priestly uh, person, the priestly writer. So the priestly sections, that's the P. The Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy primarily is D. The writers of Genesis and Exodus and mostly numbers that use Elohim, that's E, and the ones that use Yahweh, that's J. So at least four primary authors. Now this was just a great imaginative way to say Moses didn't write it. And every time you have higher critics uh, who like to look at the Bible and say the guys that you think wrote these books didn't write these books, the goal is always to push the date much later, primarily because they don't like the supernatural things that are found in the text. Not that they claim that something happened that was supernatural, but the things you cannot deny if it was written when it says it was written. In other words, if there are predictions, for instance, about uh, the king coming to the throne in Israel that we see in the Pentateuch, well, he wouldn't know that as a nomadic tribe back then coming out of Egypt. They wouldn't know they would grow into a nation and be that successful and there'd be a king on the throne and he'd have to write his own copy of the Torah, for instance, as he ascended the throne. He wouldn't have any sense of that. So we have to put that all after the fact. Those things in their mind, without the supernatural guidance of God in writing it, is anachronistic. It's out of order. How can you possibly say someone could see the future? Well, it's exactly one of the reasons the Bible says it is of divine origin, because God knows the end from the beginning, and he's able to, through his apostles and prophets, put those things down on paper that haven't yet happened. So most of the time, whether it's the book of Daniel, which you're always going to find books that are filled with predictive prophecies, they're going to post-date those as late as they can. As a matter of fact, the things in the book of Daniel were dated past the time of Christ, because there's too much information in there about, about the coming of the Messiah, about the coming of all the intertestamental uh, exchanges of power. There's no possible way these things were written ahead of time. Of course, the Dead Sea Scrolls put that all to rest when we found complete copies of the Old Testament minus one book who had all those things in a library that was clearly penned before the time of Christ. So it is with this JEDP theory saying, well, it must have happened after the nation all came together because Moses couldn't have foreseen all of that. So a couple things on this. When it comes to the documentary hypothesis, to say, well, the reason we've got to look for this being later is there was no writing by the 15th century before Christ. Now, it's fun for me to come back to this topic when I came back this summer from speaking over in Europe and had a chance to go to the British Museum uh, again and go to the Louvre and see what's going on there. There's plenty of extant, which means existing documentation uh, on on rocks and on stone and on uh, ancient documents that predate what everyone was saying. There was no possible, well, it wouldn't be on documents, it would be on stone, all the stone examples, because they've survived that long, that predate 
Moses' time. For instance, the writing in Mesopotamia that I saw even this summer, dating it to 2000 BC, that's 600 years almost before Moses was even born. And they certainly have artifacts in the whole Sumerian kingdom, the Mesopotamian area between the rivers, which is so much of what took place in modern day Iran. And they have these artifacts that they'll present to you and say, well, clearly we had what we call cuneiform writing, these, uh, this form of early writing, and it was, it was going on and being perfected for hundreds of years before Moses. In Egypt, I saw claims this summer of 3000 BC saying, here are some writings back to the most ancient, which is the, at least the symbolic writing. We know some of it is the hieroglyphics of ancient Egypt, uh, dating back before, long before, hundreds and hundreds of years before Moses. The hieratic, uh, the demotic script writing of Egypt, 2000 BC, 2500 BC, all the way back to 3000 BC. Even in China, I saw some things in China and have looked them up since about how they date the writings of China. Some of them were pictographs, some of them were uh, similar to the cuneiform writing of the Sumerians, all the way back to the 15th century BC, which is certainly the time frame we're looking for for Moses to be writing these things. Not to mention he was schooled in all the learning of the Egyptians. This was the world power of the day. He was highly educated. Certainly he knew how to read and write when we discover things from these dynasties all the way back to the time and preceding Moses. So it was a foolish theory to start with if your impetus for making a theory about post-dating the Pentateuch because there was no writing and that was the catalyst for this, not to mention the anti-supernatural bias. All scripture attests to Mosaic authorship. And I know that doesn't mean much, except for the fact that so much of scripture has the imprint of God's authority through prophetic writings. And if I can take the book of Daniel, if I can take the book of Matthew, or I can take any of these books that have things in them that were predicted that have come true, then I can say, well, if these things attest, these books attest to Mosaic authorship, uh, then I've, I've got something that I've got to contend with. And, and that is that the Bible consistently says Moses wrote these, not to mention Jewish history, uh, all the Talmudic and, and, and rabbinic writings. Uh, this, there's been no question among scriptural writers, among extra biblical writers as it relates to those of Jewish and certainly into Christian history. Moses is understood to be the author. When it comes to this anti-supernatural bias, of course what we're claiming, and we'd have to go to our theology proper, pneumatology series, and most particularly our bibliology series to remind ourselves why this means so much, that Moses has the authority to write, not only about things he wasn't there to observe, but things that were that he's not going to live long enough to observe in the future because he is the recipient of revelation. God is revealing, and that word is a very important theological word, things that wouldn't otherwise be known and unless God disclosed it to his prophets and then was guided in the recording of that through that process we talked about last week, the God-breathed process. We call it inspiration, which is not a great word for it because we don't mean he had an explosive act of creativity. It means that God governed his writings to have it put down on paper exactly what God intended. And of course, this is what the Bible claims throughout. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. I think I alluded to it last week, but here it is on the screen. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No one sits on a rock and says, well, let me think about what God might be saying. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. No one woke up and said, well, I'm going to write some Bible right now. But they, the men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And even in context, the word spoke doesn't mean the speaking prophets. The context of Second Peter chapter 1 is the writing prophets, as is clearly stated right into chapter 2 of Second Peter. So the documentary hypothesis is, the theological word for it is baloney. There's just no, there's no precedent at all for that. And, and it's been pretty much put to sleep. And I almost felt silly talking about the documentary hypothesis because no one really 
Even the critics find other ways to criticize the Bible today, but it was very, very popular at one time. But God has continued to chip away through providential means to show a lot of these theories, like the writing of Daniel, the dating of the Pentateuch, and has put those things to rest with increased discoveries, archaeology, and all that we do in terms of, of Christian research. Let's talk about the general data on Genesis. This is important. Let's talk about the purpose of this. Now, generally speaking, you can find the purpose of these books, the timeline books in particular. It will be reflected in the key word that I gave you last week as we tried to give at least one word that would depict what's going on in the book. So all of these are going to relate to the beginning of things. And you might not even want to repeat this in every point, but the beginning. Well, first thing we're going to talk about the beginning of and explain the beginning of and tie and root to meaning the beginning of is the physical universe. God is trying to answer for human beings as they get the revelation from heaven here on paper, I'm going to tell you why there's something rather than nothing, why you exist and why you have the the, the issue and the problem of being reflexive beings thinking about why am I here and, and how did this all come to be? Well, Genesis is trying in very simple terms to present to mankind. There's a reason for you being here and you're not a cosmic accident and you're not just a mistake. There's a reason you have a purpose and the universe itself has a purpose. Also speaks about some things that are debated even today in the Supreme Court. It's going to try and explain the basis of marriage, family, lots of ancillary things related to that, clothing, shame, sexuality, all those things back to Genesis trying to say there's a beginning for this, there's a reason for this. And Jesus in his day keeps going back to that. Haven't you read in the beginning God made them male and female? And this is what it's about. Go back to Genesis is what Jesus kept trying to direct people to do. Here's where you'll find the meaning of these things and the purpose of these things. Whether it's your question is divorce or polygamy, go back to Genesis and you'll see the reason for these things, how they came to be and how they should govern what you do today. Of course, the problem we're always dealing with was asked this yesterday by someone I'd met for the first time. What's the deal with all the sin and suffering in the world? I get that asked all the time when I talk to non-Christians and that's the question they have. And of course, I'm going to go back to Genesis to explain why that is the case. You know, why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there marriage rather than no marriage, right? Why do we have families and why do we believe those are important and sacred institutions from God? And why is there sin? Why is there disease? Why is there suffering? Why is there death? Why is there evil in this world? Genesis puts that in context for us and it explains the beginning of it all. It explains the beginning of languages. And though not explicitly, I suppose, you can put next to that ethnicities. People like to call them races, but there's only one race you understand, the human race, when it comes to human beings that have the image of God. But when you talk about ethnicities, why are there ethnicities and languages and nations? Well, the book of Genesis is going to briefly present to us the reason for that. And perhaps most importantly, and certainly the bulk of the book from chapters 12 to 50, we're going to be talking about how God is explaining to people for all time the beginning of God's plan for Israel, which is going to culminate even as it says in Genesis 12, which is the first paragraph of the second half of the book. And that is, I'm going to tell you that this whole reason for picking out one person, that Judaism, Islam, and Christianity still, I mean, we all see things going back to this one person. Why did God pick this? And why did he start with this man? All, all because he wants to bring a blessing to the whole world and deal with the problem that we dealt, that we saw exposed in chapter three, the problem of sin and suffering and death. He's going to solve that problem. And it's all going to start with his plan, working it out through time, through the nation of Israel. Basic breakdown. I put this in a box because if you flip back through these notes later on, uh, this is your outline basically of the book. Try to make all these outlines that we give you logical, not necessarily uh, you know dealing with the details of the, of the data, but just giving you something you can look at and say, okay, here's the basic breakdown of the book. Number one, as simple as we can make it, human beginnings, chapters one through 11. Now I'm going to combine a few things here, but if you look at chapters one through five, I've already put the numbers down there for you. You can put next to that creation and fall. Of course, the first five chapters are dealing 
dealing with the issue of creation and the problem of the fall. Why we're here and how it got all messed up. That's the Mike Fabares summary right there. Chapter 6 through 9, God is going to show something about his justice and his holiness by showing how corruption spreads. There's a certain lesson in the teaching about sin there and how he's going to respond to it in a huge and cataclysmic way. And, and that is our discussion in chapter 6 through 9 of the corruption of the world and the flood of the world. Chapters 10 through 12. Babel, Tower of Babel and the Nations. We'll talk a little bit about that. That's chapters 10 through 12. And then, of course, we pick it up in the second half, which is Israel's beginnings, chapters 12 through 50. So 12 through 23, the story of Abraham, very important. 24 through 26, we're going to hear, learn about Isaac, very short little section. 27 through 36, Jacob, and the longest section for reasons not just because Joseph is important, but because he and his brothers are critically important in the salvation of the people of Israel, and God's providence is Joseph. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, we often call these the patriarchs. Patriarchs from the Latin word, uh, which is uh, for, um, and he gets into Spanish, padre, the fathers, the fathers, the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, Israel's beginnings. There's your outline. Time frame. Let's talk about the time frame. The first half of this book, it's not identically half, obviously, but chapters 1 through 11, human beginnings. Well, I wish I could give you a date for the creation. I cannot, and I cannot because I don't buy simply the, the, the calculation of the ancestries and, and the genealogies. I, I can't assume that there's no gaps in some of those. There's not millions of years of gaps, but I don't know when that date is. If you've read that the beginning of the creation was in October of 4004 BC, and you got a chart at home that says that, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. Matter of fact, I would disagree with that. I was having lunch with Dr. Moeller, who said, well, when do you think it was created? I said, I don't know. When you tell me, you're the smart guy. And of course, we don't, we don't know. I don't know. I just remember that put me on the spot there, but I don't know, and neither does he, and all I do know is that 2165 is a good date for us, because in 2165 or 2166 was when Abraham was born. So there's the birth of Abraham, and that ends that section there in the bottom of chapter 11. Israel's beginnings now, if I want to give a time frame for that, I can be a little more specific. Now there's a gap here, because I'm going to start this with the call of Abraham in chapter 12. When he is called, his initial call there in chapter 12, I'm going to put that at, at uh, 2090. That's a a pretty firm date. There's another school of thought on that that pushes it back 70 years, but I think because of a date, we'll look at this another time perhaps that we find in in Joshua. We're stuck at, at this particular date and everything seems to fit even though there is an alternative timeline that's just a little bit off. 1804 is the end of the book basically. So that's 268 years. So we got some thousand, whatever we've got in the first section, we'll talk about that in a minute. We've got almost 300 years in the second section of the book from Abraham through Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph in the end of the book when he dies in chapter 50. So I'll try to do that with every book as best we can, give you the time frame. And some of them are tricky, like the, the prophet Joel, and, and there's certain books we're, we're struggling with. But we'll give you the best we can to put this in a time frame that's more specific than the time line that I gave you last time. One more thing, genre. Letter D. Read D on the screen. Genre. Genre, by the way, that word is a French word. We get the word gender from that category of person, but they're in two subcategories. So when we speak of genre, we know that the Bible is a written literary work. We need to know what kind of literature is this. When we get to the Psalms, for instance, you would say, what genre is that? You might say it is poetry. That's poetry. And we can see that by the way the translators put this down for us, either in, in, in prose or in poetic form. So we understand that there's certain things that are clearly poetry and the language 
tells us that. But when it comes to the genre of the book of Genesis, it's very important for us to understand right out of the gate what it is. It is a clearly presented to us as a historical or a narrative text. It's telling us history as though you would tell any other book of history, say in First, first Kings or, or Second Chronicles. It's saying this happens, then this happens, then he went there, and then this, this happened, and then that guy did this. That is how it's presented to us as, as historical narrative. Now, if you pick up the Bible and you just start reading it, you get that right out of the gate. It's not until you run into some concerns that you start to try and fit the book of Genesis into a different kind of genre. But it is presented to us not as allegory, not as some kind of parabolic material. It's certainly not poetry. It's presented to us overall as a historical narrative document. It is presented as history is what I'm trying to say. And it's quoted as history. Some 60 times in the New Testament, the book of Genesis is quoted. And it's not quoted as, as you've heard in the poetry or the analogous story or the symbolism of Genesis. These things are presented to us as as fact. When Jesus says, have you not read in in, in Moses, in the law of Moses, how God created the male and female? And and, and he set these two up and he said, "For for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father, cling to his wife. This is presented to us as stuff that actually happened is narrative historical information. It's clearly not a textbook, a technical textbook. Uh, I remember getting in an argument with a quasi-professor at a college telling me that uh, the Bible isn't true because, I remember, yeah, the argument was this. Carlin was in that class with me years and years ago. I was a teenager back then, and he argued with me about the fact that uh, the Bible's not true because it says in Genesis 1 that the moon is the lesser light to govern the night. And I said, well, it is. And he said, no, it's not. It's just a reflector of light. And I said, oh, excuse me. You know, it's a reflector of light. This is what we call the language of appearance. There's no, this is not a technical manual about how photons, you know, find their origins in space dust on, on the moon. It's not, it's not a science textbook. It's not a technical manual. It's, it's a book that is narrative. And in any book I pick up, I can pick up any book and, and, and within two, three pages, I can show you language of appearance. And, and I called him on this when he was speaking about something related to, and Carlin, I'll know the details of this, when he was talking about, uh, we're talking about sunsets or how beautiful the sunset is. And I was like, oh, flag on the play. The sun never set, you realize. You should have said, what a beautiful rotation of the earth that we just had. <laughs> See, so you're a liar, and I'm not going to believe anything you say in this classroom. Now, I didn't say it that um, that tersely, but I tried to point out the man's inconsistency, and he didn't like that. But it's not a technical textbook. I'm trying to show you the genre of this is historical narrative. It certainly has a lot of language of appearance right out of the gate in Genesis 1. And language of appearance does not disqualify it from speaking truthfully about historical matters. It does presuppose, and no doubt about this, it's not a philosophical textbook. It's not a theological or an apologetics textbook. It is a book that is presupposing right out of the gate theism, that there is a God. In the beginning, God created. It doesn't say, let me tell you about this entity known as the triune God, and here's why he exists even though you can't see him. We don't have any of that. It's not an apologetics work. It's not a philosophical work. It's historical narrative. It presupposes theism, and it describes things that are supernatural. It does that. Not often. Not often. But when it happens, it's recorded. And as you've heard me teach on this before, some of you in this church, uh, and by my count, and one week, I just tried to spend all week going from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, doing nothing but trying to record and tally the miraculous events where God suspends natural law and does something, what I called in a sermon that followed that, a GT1, a God thing one, where he sets aside the rules of nature. And, And I found less than 100 of them in the scriptures. And so it doesn't happen often. And I counted, by the 
the way, creation week as one. But beyond creation week, not many of them. We have a couple of them throughout Genesis, but not many. But when we see them, they're presented to us under the assumption that, the presupposition that if there is a God, he can certainly, and he has the power to break in through time and space and do some things in time and space. Even with the promises that he's going to break into time and space as soon as the third chapter of Genesis. And he does so, 1400 years after Moses penned those words. So that's the genre of the book. It's important to state that, I suppose, as we get into anticipating the critics, because we're always going to have critics when we turn the paper over and talk about creation. Creation. The importance of this controversy. We have to talk about creation, and we have to recognize that right now is a critical time for us as the church to take this debate seriously. It is an important controversy. Modern secularists in the old days, it used to be someone, if you were going to talk about God creating the world, it used to be hard to deny that. In other words, you couldn't be even in the academy, in an academic setting in a university years and years ago and deny that God created the heavens and the earth, and it would be a, it would be a, a rogue view. Then it got more easy to say, well, okay, now it's easy for me to deny that. Certainly post-Darwinian epic of modern life and uh, with all the rest of the philosophy that was anti-God and trying to put God to death. Now it's almost impossible, I should say, it's very difficult, just flip that over for us to affirm that God created the heavens and the earth, at least in the academy. And what drives some of these atheists and, and evolutionists crazy is that with all their convincing of trying to convince the masses that, you know, we just got here through this big infinitesimally small point of singularity that exploded, uh, that people still refuse, at least the majority of people, to believe that. In other words, most people will still say, well, God created it. Now, I don't want to quibble about the details, they'll say, but uh, they struggle with the fact that our world, and the stats are, more people believe, and as the critics, the the atheists will say, I'm disturbed to live in a society where more people believe in the virgin birth than they do in evolution, which is the facts. As a matter of fact, there are some recent polls that say the belief in creation is growing, even in Western countries. Nevertheless, the modernists say, listen, you must put this theism particularly as it relates to God stepping into space and time by creating something, you ought to destroy this. And naturalism as a philosophy should destroy this. And it's important, they say. The new atheist Dawkins, Hitchens, Harrison, Dennett. Dennett was the one who wrote a, a book about this ultimate theory of Darwinism being this, this acid that, that destroys everything it touches. In other words, the ultimate keystone of all thought in philosophy, not just science, the concept of philosophy, is that we didn't have a creator. That, to them, they say, is the, it's the trump. It is the keystone. It's the, it's the secret decoder ring to seeing every discipline that is taught. And if we don't get everyone to see that, which necessitates getting rid of theism and the belief in creation, then we're doomed for failure. And, and they all teach this. This is important for them. Harris, in particular, is one of the, he's the youngest of the four uh, new atheists. I mean, this, they, they are, there's a vitriol of, about creationism, and they have to put it to death. Naturalism, which is what it is, that there is no God, there is no exterior force, there is no man upstairs, there's nothing beyond what you see. They have to explain everything through naturalism, and because of that, they're so confident in it now, they say it's got to destroy theism, and that's the goal. The problem is the modern religionists, and I just call them that because there are a lot of people that are teaching in seminaries, a lot of people teaching in Bible schools say, well, they got a really good point. And every time I turn around on the Discovery Channel, and every time I tune into NASA and I see all the things going on, you know, in the Academy of Sciences, I'm really convinced that they're all right. So Christians must concede this point. And if we don't, you're going to be obsolete. 
You're going to be seen as a nut and a screwball and a crazy person. So it's time for Christians to lay aside this infantile and elementary belief in creation and somehow find a theory that can merge the two. Because hopefully you can see that your belief in Christ and your belief in God is in a separate category than your belief in how we got here. And so modern religionists are trying to separate these two and trying to say, if you want to believe in creation, you've got to believe in it in a way that in no way sees it as an A or B option. So modern secularists are saying, we got to kill your belief. And modern religionists are saying, we just need to stop and, and concede this. They're right. This is how we got here. You know, 13 billion years ago, a big explosion. That's how we got here. So just concede it and stop arguing about creation. The importance of the controversy should lead us at least to think through this issue and come to some good conclusions. Let's at least say this about what the Bible asserts. Letter B. The consistent biblical assertions about creation. Number one, we know this for sure. Repeat it from beginning to end of the Bible. God is the direct and personal creator of all things. God is the direct and personal creator of all things. We'll look at how people try to merge those thoughts. But right now, let's just say that's what the Bible teaches. I mean, look at John 1, 1, speaking of the agency of creation, talking about the word. The beginning was the word, word was with God, the word was God. And it speaks there in that wonderful prelude to the gospel of John, that nothing that was made could have been made without him. All things that have been made were made by him, and if anything's here, it came through him. It is a direct act of creation. Even in the beginning, Genesis 1-3, the Spirit of God moving over the waters as the creation process here starts. God is the direct and personal creator. Just as Hebrews says, every house has got a builder, and the builder of all things is God. He's the direct architect and builder of what is the physical universe, including you. Of course, the Bible says he created out of nothing. Genesis 1, he starts saying, let there be this, and let there be that, and let there be this. You just do a search in Genesis 1 of let there be. He's constantly speaking things into existence that weren't there before, which is a clear break from the mythology of, of Sumerian or, or Akkadian or ancient Near Eastern thoughts and talk of God or any kind of even the the pantheon of gods in in the Roman Greco world where you have a sense of the the gods just taking existing material and refashioning that God is one saying let there be light there's no light light he's speaking things into existence he's creating something out of nothing and you know the Latin phrase perhaps ex nihilo ex nihilo the concept of God creating something out of nothing keep saying let there be all the mythological depictions of God's creating are nothing other than rearranging created material. But when it comes to what the Bible says, it says he creates out of nothing. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. It wasn't here before. He speaks it into existence. And I keep saying that phrase, so I might as well write it down. Number three, he speaks it into existence. He creates it with a word. This is the consistent discussion in the Bible of God saying that his word is the agency of creation, which again is not his tongue flapping around air coming through his vocal cords and going out of his lips, right? Because he has none of that. We're not talking about phonetic sounds. We're talking about him, just like you, if you're going to say, I'll have a Pepsi. You're going to make a decision to volitionally choose to do something. When you make that, that statement, you're voicing your volition. And when God determines to do something and says, mm, I'm going to do that, he does it. 
and it's not hard for him. It's not difficult. He doesn't need to rest after six days of doing it, but he speaks it into existence. Second Peter chapter three certainly ought to be a passage you jot down when it continually talks about how easy it is for God to make with a word, how easy it is for God to destroy with a word. Second Peter three, five, they deliberately overlooked this one fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Psalm 33, six, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. This is poetic language. That's one of the reasons I would say he doesn't have breath, right? How does it smell? What is the point? He's saying, God, just like we would speak something to have it happen and have someone do something material, the fabric of the universe comes into existence because God decides to have it happen. He purposes to do it. He creates with a word out of nothing. It reflects his attributes, even after the fall. I know the world's all messed up after Genesis 3, but even after the fall. Well, let's talk before the fall. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good, right? You want a really good cake maker to make you a birthday cake. That would be good. You don't want a bad cake maker to make you a birthday cake. And so you think the attributes of the baker going to create a cake that's going to be commensurate with his skill. And so here's God who is making things. And he says, I think that's a good cake. I made a good world. I made good people. I did a good thing. And when it comes to what God said before the fall, it's all good. Of course, there was a liability in making us with such volitional powers to put it in human terms. And because of that, we had the fall. And three chapters later, we had the world all messed up. But even after that, Psalm 19 verses one and two says, even now the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, they pour forth speech and night to night, they reveal knowledge. Romans chapter one, verse 20, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, even post fall in the things that have been made. So people are without excuse. God is showing that he's there and what kind of orderly, creative, symmetrical, intelligent God he is just by people examining the world that he made. Number five, God's creative acts are fully mature. Every time God does a creative act, a GT1, less than a hundred times in the Bible, when he does something like create something out of nothing by the word of his power, he does so so that everything is useful and being used at the moment. Everything in every creative miracle, that's the way it is. When, when Jesus heals the man with a withered hand, every cell in the muscle of that forearm was completely functioning, fully mature and ready to go. It had all the proteins, all the enzymes, had all the oxygen needed to get that work done to squeeze that hand, whereas before it was a shriveled up hand and a shriveled up arm. Every time he creates something out of earth, when he creates Adam out of the dust of the earth and breathes into him the breath of life, when he has this picture of saying it and purposing it and doing it, he's got blood in his extremities. There's blood in his ankles. Why? His heart just beat the first time. How did blood get down there? God creates something completely full. The lungs, right, took their first breath and the blood that was in his hips had already been oxygenated. How did that happen? Because God creates things fully mature and ready to go. He didn't have to have his eyes sit there and warm up. They were all warmed up, ready to go. The rods and cones in the back of the eye were shooting signals to the brain and Adam was seeing immediately without any warm-up time. God always creates things that are fully mature. And as I like to say, they always have the appearance of a history and age they never had because God is creating things fully. Think about the glucose in the veins of Adam and Eve, and they hadn't yet to have their first piece of fruit. And they've got all that they need right there, ready to go. God always creates that way. Did they have belly buttons? Yes, they had belly buttons. (laughs) Eve had a beautiful belly button. I can only imagine. Perfect. 
fingernails. Didn't take time to grow them. All completely ready to go, mature, just like we would. And the rocks, by the way, that they walked on, fully mature. They had parent and daughter isotopes, so they were stable compounds. And everything, in a radiometric way, was completely as it ought to be, for everything to work the way it should work. Were there rings in the tree? Absolutely. The trees were completely mature and fully developed. Every miracle that God ever records in the Bible has the same characteristics. God's creative acts are always fully useful, fully mature, always. And I like to give that example of John 2, of the creation of water to wine, and I give that so many times from the platform. Uh, You'd think I was a drinker. I I don't drink, but I think it's such a fascinating thing. I did some study on wine and how complex it is and how God takes H2O and immediately turns it into wine. Amazing, with all the complexity. It's one of the most complex liquids you could create, and he does it with a word of his power, immediately. And they were ready to drink it. It had no history. All right, creation. We can say more on creation, but it is an important topic. If you want to learn more about that, study our anthropology series. We did a whole night on creation, but that's scratching the surface on what happened there in Genesis. The fall. The tree was a call to fidelity. The tree was a call to fidelity. It could have been anything. It could have been don't touch that rock. Don't swim in that stream. Don't scratch your back. Don't eat that fruit. It was just a test of fidelity. God is God. God can make the rules. God has the right to make the rules. He made a rule and he says, now I want you to keep it because you choose to keep it because you want to keep it because you love me because you believe me keep this rule. No magic in this, nothing poisonous about it. It didn't seep into their body like some kind of shot of heroin. They weren't changed because of something intrinsic in this fruit, which it doesn't say was an apple. As a matter of fact, a lot of Jewish historians think it was a pomegranate, one of the decorative uh, fruits on the temple. A lot of other reasons for that, but I won't go into. Not a poisonous or magical thing. It was a call to fidelity. So there's a tree in the middle of this garden called aptly the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because they were about to experience that. He didn't want them to experience that. He wanted them to experience it by being faithful and doing what was right. The tempter had already rebelled. Now, again, I said the beginning of Genesis is telling us something about the origins of the physical universe. It presupposes God. It presupposes some, some things, including it presupposes that there was a being there tempting Adam and Eve in the garden, and he'd already rebelled. For more on that, go to our angelology series that we did on Thursday nights when we talked about Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. I know people are going to say, well, that's an indictment against the prince of Tyre, and that was a man. You're right. It was a man, and Ezekiel and Ezekiel 28 starts talking about that man. But it's interesting, when he calls him the prince of Tyre, he keeps calling him that. No one in Tyre, this Phoenician city, would have ever called him the prince of Tyre. They might have, I suppose, if they knew him since he was a kid. But he was the king of Tyre. Well, then in the middle of the passage, verses 11 through 19, he starts talking about the king of Tyre, which is funny because the king of Tyre should have been the one he was talking about in the beginning, who he speaks of in human terms. The real king of Tyre, he's saying, is the one behind you. And the one behind you, I need to talk about in these terms. He was blameless. He was in the Garden of Eden. He was the signet of perfection. He was the anointed guardian cherub. That's not the king of Tyre. That's the king of Tyre. Who is the king of Tyre? This terribly evil place. Well, it's like talking about Nazi Germany and Hitler and saying, well, let me talk about the real Fuhrer, the real Fuhrer. And he starts talking about demonic being behind him, which in that case... In Tyre, it was Satan himself. And he says, Satan has taken a special interest in this Phoenician city, the enemy of Israel, and I'm going to tell you who this person is, pulling the puppet strings of the prince of Tyre. It's a story that starts with a human and it ends with a discussion that's revealing, pulls back the curtain, a revelatory statement about the fall of Satan. Isaiah 14 is the same way. It taunts against the king of Babylon, but it kicks into really quickly this discussion of something far beyond it, calling the day star the son of the dawn. He's called a man in verse 16. I'll give you that in Isaiah 14. 
14. But it says, as it keeps alluding to something behind this, someone who had fallen from heaven, someone who had said in his own heart, I will make myself like the Most High. Now, these are words that cannot possibly be referring to the king of Babylon. So anyway, that's for another time. But the tempter already had rebelled. When did he rebel? I, can't, I don't know. Some people say, well, if he said everything he created was good in chapter 1, then it had to be between chapter 1 and chapter 3. I don't know that. And other people try to use other reasons for why it had to happen between that period of time. I don't, I'm not constrained by those arguments because I think the focus of the first chapter was the created physical universe. And I don't, ne- I don't necessarily, I'm not going to move it because of the statement when God said what he created was good because he was speaking of what he was perceiving at that place. And that was the created order in Genesis 1, which didn't talk about about the creation of the spirit beings, the angels. The fall, of course, was a sentence of human death. Human death was relational and biological. Sometimes you call it, you know, spiritual death and physical death, but you need to understand what we're talking about. When we say spiritual death, we're talking about the relationship they had with God was damaged. Damaged in a way that had to be repaired by God himself in another way that could not be atoned for simply by them covering up their shame or killing an animal. But they had a real problem, a barrier. Their sin had made a separation between them and the God that made them. They didn't have the fellowship they had before. It was strained. It was different. Biological death, of course, kicked in. Right then we had the fabric of the universe actually cursed, a sentence of natural evil, which meant when he said in chapter uh, 3, verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you, then what we had at that particular point was every cell in the body. Everything had changed at that point. We had an attack. We had a hostile environment in which man lived, even the body that he was created out of, which was said to be made from the dust. Now the dust was created. That means his body was created. At a cellular, atomic level, things started to have this experience of corruption. So we had biological death beginning at the point of moral sin. It's the reason we have hurricanes. It's the reason we have earthquakes. It's the reason we have birth defects. It's the reason we have the flu. It's the reason people die. Everything in this natural world is cursed. And if you sit around with philosophers, and I sat there and I took philosophy class at the University of Arizona with uh, the writer of our textbook dealing with issues of sin, and I could get him all the way to the place of natural evil. He was willing to admit we could have the world we have because of moral sin. I get that. And I can explain a lot of things based on what you're telling me as I was trying to preach to this guy as a student about what the Bible had to say, but I have a problem, he said, with natural evil. And I said, well, the only way, the only way you're going to have to accept this is because God was clearly showing the connection between moral evil and, and natural evil. It was a sentence by God. God is the one who, as it says in Romans 8, subjected the created order, the fabric of the universe, to bondage. Not because it wanted to be, not of itself, not of its will, but because of him who subjected it, the fall. I felt like I came close with that professor. Flood. Let's talk about the flood. Genesis 6 through 9. Of course, the flood is, as I kind of set up, as I talked about it in the outline, it is a microcosm of the whole story of the Bible. There is sin. It is systemic. It's all through society. It gets worse and worse as time goes on. But God's favor is extended. We'll look at the components. Let's look at each part of this. Genesis 6 verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every time he checked in with everybody's thoughts and brain and their imaginations, it was continually seeking after what was selfish, self-aggrandizing, about their own pleasure, weren't putting others first, they didn't love God, they loved money, all the things you see, as Paul writes Timothy about the end of time, we saw there at the beginning of chapter 6 of the first book of the Bible. Genesis 6, 11 through 12, there's another statement now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, the corruption of society. And the earth was filled with violence. The news was worse than ours, but we're getting there. But God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all the flesh corrupted their way on the earth. So here's what we've got. Something that is a microcosm in the beginning of the Bible. 
which of course, if you were living in that time, that was huge. But from us, it's just one little story in the Bible that showed everything about the whole of the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. We've got all the picture, which most of it, of course, from Genesis 3 to Revelation 19 is sin and corruption growing and growing and getting worse and worse. It's also a picture, a microcosm, the picture of redemption and salvation. God graciously is going to extend his favor to one man and his family. Genesis 6, verses 8 through 9. But Noah found, there's our word, favor, grace. God placed on him his favor, his smile, his his delight. Noah found favor in the eyes of God because Noah was a righteous man. And guess what? He wasn't a righteous man without God's favor being put upon him. It's the chicken and the egg in this regard. We say, oh, God loved Noah because Noah was a good man in the midst of a bad society. The only reason he was a good man was because God's favor was on him. And God's favor was on him because he was a good man. It goes both ways. It's partly cause and partly effect. It should say it's wholly cause and partly effect. Blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. He had a relationship with God. God endowed him with favor. He walked in a way that was distinct from his culture. So God says, I'm going to provide a way out. See the microcosm of the whole of the Bible? Sin, systemic, all through the world, getting worse. I'm going to put my favor on this man and this small little group. And now I'm going to provide a way for him to escape the coming wrath. This is the picture of the Bible. The ark is built. Ark means box. That's all it means. It means, uh, this case, if it's a floating box, we'll call it a barge. It's not meant to travel across the Atlantic Ocean. It's just meant to float. That's all it was built to do, to float. Now, that's a big, long project for a floating box, but it took, according to the Bible, a hundred years to build. That's a long process, and it wasn't just Noah out there trying to talk his kids into helping him. I'm sure, as God blessed him, as so often is the case in righteous people's lives, so often, not always, I'm sure he had plenty of servants, he had plenty of help, he had plenty of people that worked for him that were able to work on this project big project, 100 years long. And of course, the more you study this, the more you recognize it's ideal in its dimensions for stability. It was 450 feet long, depending on how you measure a cubic. And if you've been out to Kentucky to look at the crazy man who built one, right, uh, out there, the Genesis people, he's measuring, and there's, he, there's about five different measurements for a cubic, depending on where you go in history to find that. And I think in his depiction of this, you know, full-size ark, anybody been to that yet? Yeah. He's used a larger one, and he's got reasons for that, I'm sure. Nevertheless, I'm going to say it's at least 450, if you use the traditional, which is the Jewish cubic, at least 450 feet long. That's 13 or more buses, school buses, and and buses you would see, municipal buses, long. It's 45 feet at least tall, three decks, four stories high, 75 feet wide. That's about 100,000 square feet of space. It's very big. It's at least 522 railroad boxcars in terms of its capacity. And people say, well, you know, you can't get all the animals in there. In the Bible, it uses a word for the the kinds of animals. Go get these two of every kind and seven of every clean kind of animal. If you study kind, and though in terms of figuring out the taxonomy of animals, you've got to make a decision what that meant. And again, God was the one rounding them up, not Noah. Noah wasn't out there with baits and, and lassoes trying to get animals. God was bringing them in. So God chose a certain a part of, of the classifications of the animal kingdom to pick what he wanted in that ark to represent what would now be known. Of course, we're many, many years from that time of the variety of all that we have. You don't bring in a poodle. You don't bring in a collie. You don't bring in a great Dane. You don't bring in a, you know, wiener dog and a, you don't, you don't do all that. What's a dachshund? Is that what you call it? Dotson B210, whatever it's called. Those little funny dogs. Pugs. There's another You don't need all of those. You don't need all the species. You don't need all the brands. You just need the kinds of animals. Now, linguists are trying to figure out where that fits on the hierarchy, but it's certainly not 
every single derivative of every kind or genus of animal. And they just say if it's genus, you've got about 16,000 animals. And of course, most of them are very small. Some are big. They didn't have to be full grown. I would thank God in an economy of his work that he's doing, though it's a plenty big bard or had Noah build, he could have had very young animals. I do think the flood is the reason for the extinction of the dinosaurs, but not because they missed the boat. Although God could have said, I know what I'm going to do with you guys, so there's no need for you to come. Perhaps that happened. I don't know. But uh, the world post-flood, when we call the antediluvian world versus the post-diluvian world, before the flood and after the flood, was so radically different. There was no way to sustain the animal, uh, all the dinosaur species. Anyway, if that's the case, by the way, and you had 1,600, if the average size was a sheep or lamb, you would have only about 50% of the ark filled with animals. In other words, you have plenty of space for food and for all kinds of of stuff. Whatever. You're going to argue that because you think it's ridiculous. You're going to have to deal with every single culture of antiquity talking about a flood. Even that. Anthropologists will say every society, every culture, every ancient story that speaks with any breadth at all is going to talk about a flood, and most of them are talking about a worldwide flood, even though they don't know where it's going on because they are not the recipients of revelation. And if you're going to try and say, well, that's where Noah got it because we have things like the Gilgamesh epic that predate Moses, and it talks about a flood. No, the point is, the reason all these ancient civilizations talk about a flood is because there was a flood. And speaking my time at the university, I remember pulling my geologist, uh, my geology professor aside and took several classes in geology. And I talked to him about, we were talking about the the extinction of the dinosaur and theories that were prevalent back in in the eighties when I was taking classes. And, you know, he said, well, we really think it had to do, it had to be some catastrophe that took place on the planet. And we went on and on and on. And we talked about all the things that might cause that. And certainly as I talked about uh, the issues of of fossil fuels and the bearing of, of biologic material, quickly before it could oxidate and before we could lose all that. And I, you know, I pressed him on all this. He said, well, there's got to be something. And, you know, we really think it probably has to do with some big asteroid. And if it was that big to create such a nuclear winter on our planet, then clearly we would see some evidence of that. But it's probably under the ocean. And the only, I don't know, we don't see it, but it had to happen somewhere. And of course, they worked hard to try and find things that would fit the kind of circumference of what kind of big asteroid would have to hit our planet to make that happen. Although there's no consensus on that. And again, I said, well, what about a flood? What about a flood? What about a flood? This was after class. I wasn't doing this in front of all the students. But, you know, he said, well, you know what? I, I, whatever, I guess, but it's in the Bible, so I, I don't believe it, right? See, the presupposition of people saying, you know what? Your flood story really fits all the criteria for what I'm trying to come up with for a theory, and I'm seeking hard after the evidence to find it. And, you know, I guess a worldwide flood would do, but I don't know how that would happen. It's in your Bible, and I, I don't believe that. Yeah, the flood is a catastrophic event. I think I put that next here. Yeah, a major universal catastrophe. That's what it is. It is described textually that way as a major universal catastrophe. Genesis chapter 7, verses 19 and 20 says, The waters prevailed so mightily upon the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubics deep. Every mountain was covered. Now again, these kind of superlative statements that all the high mountains were covered, and every one of them, those kinds of statements, they will say, well, if the document of Genesis is a human document, they're speaking from their perspective, and that's all they could see, so it was probably a localized flood. But if the Bible is God's word, and God is revealing truth to his prophet, in this case Moses, and Moses under the inspiration of God's spirit, the guidance of the spirit is putting these things down. If God is revealing this, then God certainly knows the alls and everies, and that's the way it's described in the Bible. And if I had no reason to believe the Bible was a supernatural document, that means God governing 
what was written, then I would say, you know, yeah, you're right. I don't know how a man could know that every mountain. You, did you send a, you know, a, a, a drone up there to see if every mountain was covered? No, but God knows. And in the Bible, I believe that God's word has accurately depicted what happened at the flood, a major universal catastrophe. Not to mention there is this promise of never having a major universal catastrophe again via a flood by a rainbow. And if that's what the rainbow meant, if that's what God did, because by the way, we never had a rainbow because we had a completely different environment, an environment with, I believe, with the waters above, this kind of canopy that existed over the top of the world, and that's somewhat conjecture, but when I look at that and I realize I would have a kind of world that would match all the geologic, all the geologic evidence that we have regarding the kinds of things we happen going going on to the polar regions and the green and the, and, and the foliage and all that happened with, with fossil fuels and the covering all this biological material, if all of that happened and we had all of that taking place, then I'm saying, you know, this seems to fit the kind of frame that I find in all the evidence. And the rainbow, for instance, would only be possible after the destruction of that kind of world. And now when people saw it, which I know you know is just a refraction of light, but a kind of refraction that wouldn't have happened because we wouldn't have sunlight the way we have it now. We wouldn't have the raining of radiation through that kind of ca- canopy the way we have now. We wouldn't even have rain because the Bible even says that specifically before the flood. If all of that is true, then God sends this phenomenon of color through a rainbow to say, I'm never doing this again to destroy the whole world. I've changed everything now, but I'm not going to destroy it with water. And if that's not what it meant because it wasn't a universal flood and it was a local flood, then you explain the rainbow to the people of Houston. It doesn't make any sense because he's flooding the parts of the world all the time. And the the, the weather patterns of a fallen earth earth are doing that. But God said, I'm never going to flood the whole earth again. Not only that, it wouldn't even be possible now with the way he's transformed the world through the catastrophe of the flood. So the rainbow makes absolutely no sense if this were a localized flood. Geologic evidence, we could talk more about that, but I think everything that we see in geology, much like what we saw with the eruption of Mount St. Helens, doing things in the geological landscape through the same kind of process with a little different agent in that, creates the same kind of effect that we have now around the world, Grand Canyon included. Universal flood stories, I've already talked about that, they're in every culture. Matter of fact, you can just go to Wikipedia and look up flood stories. They'll call it flood myths, which is interesting, but they're all over the world. And the lifespans after the flood. You want another reason why I think the universal catastrophe of the flood changed the entire makeup and composition of the way this world functions. Just look at the the age spans. Pre-Genesis 6, we have people living between 800 and almost 1,000 years old as the norm in that one table of nations that describes ages in Genesis 11. All these long lives. The average person living that has a recorded date prior to the flood is 857 years. That's the average. Now, why in the world, if you're making up a book where everyone's dying, you know, when we normally die, why would you write that? That's weird. And then why would you start a mathematically, perfectly mathematical dip in ages as we move from the flood and equal out to what we have now. Now, of course, we've had ups and downs based on disease and the Industrial Revolution and all the things that have happened in terms of nourishment and all that. But the moving from old age that was called old prior to the flood and old age as we started to move in decades away from the flood, it perfectly fits. You can mathematically chart this. From Noah to Abraham, the average death was 317 years. By the end of Genesis, we had high 100s by the end of Genesis. 175 is when Abraham died, and the Bible says he was full of years. Isaac, 180. Jacob, 147. Joseph, we just have this period of time, 300 years. Now he's dying at 110 years. By Exodus, you've got Noah, 
Joshua, Caleb, 110, 120 years old. And it's talking about them dying at an old age, a ripe old age. The punishment in Exodus was that everyone from 20 to 120 was going to die in 40 years. That's when Moses writes the song about the death. And he says, you know, 70 of due strength, 80. That's not because he's talking in our terms today. It's because people were normally living to 120 years old. And just a few decades back, they were living to 140 years old. And now he's knocking people off so quick in the desert because God's judgment was upon the people. It's the oldest psalm by Moses, Psalm 90. And it's about the rapid death rate that was taking place in the desert. By Samuel's day, when Eli dies, he's said to be an old man at 90. 98. David dies years later at 71. And it says he's full of years. Now, how in the world can you die at a ripe old age full of years at 140? And then decades later, I mean, many decades later, but I mean, you've got what? 600 years later, you've got people dying at 71. And they said, well, he's he's lived a full life because we have this deceleration of lifespan. And I think the reason is because we have something very different going on between us and the sun that's killing us. Let's talk about Babel. First of all, I think you need to know this. When you get to the Tower of Babel and you read chapter 10 and then you read chapter 11, you need to understand something called literary recapitulation, which is a fancy word for saying that so often in the Bible, we have an establishing statement, particularly in Hebrew, in the Hebrew text of of Genesis, we see it repeatedly, where you state the whole story, then you go back in time and you pick up the story and tell details of the story. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, for instance. You have the creation in Genesis 1. We're all done with it. Male and female, he created them in his image. Chapter 2, oh, let's talk about how he created Eve. Now, if you're going to think in a linear way as a Western literary thinker, you're going to think, what's this flashback all about? What, what do you, where do you do? Why do you keep zipping back and forth in time? It's like that Diana biography that came on. It kept taking the timeline. Now, you, some of you saw it and took the timeline back and forth and back and forth. In, in, in Jewish Hebrew literary fashion, the recapitulation of telling story and going back and, and explaining why it is the way it, it was in the story, like male and female, how do we get male and female? Well, we're going to tell you in chapter two. We see that a lot. In Genesis 10, we have the table of nations, all the different nations, all the different names, all where they were spread out. In Genesis 11, we have the dividing of the nations. This is one of the most classic Hebrew recapitulations in a literary text that makes us look at Genesis and understand how it works. It's just a way they love to write. Once you tell the nations and saying this nation, that nation, this nation, well, again, we're telling this from 1445 BC perspective and looking at how we got the nations there. Now it's going to, the question, hey, how do we get all those different nations and why do they have different nations? Then hey, what about their languages? Chapter 11 goes and explains that. The dividing of the nations. They got divided this thing called Babel. That's literary recapitulation. What did they do? They disobeyed. After the flood, they got off the boat, off the barge, and God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He says there in verse 7, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Go, fill, go, scatter, fill the earth. Genesis eleven four in the story of the Tower of Babel. Then they said, quote, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, if you're an in-tuned reader, knowing where we've come from in chapter 9, now in chapter 11, they're saying we don't want to scatter. We want to stay together. We don't want to go and spread out on the planet. We love being here 
consolidated in one place. We don't want to be dispersed. This is an act of disobedience. Primarily, you can see that in the fourth verse of chapter 11, at the core of it was a disobedience to what God had said repeatedly after the flood. So what's this tower all about? When you read about the Tower of Babel, you might read pretty quickly in any source about things called ziggurats, the ziggurats. There's a lot of extra biblical writing about the ziggurats. The ziggurats, now this is anachronistic, but follow me here. The ziggurats that followed the Tower of Babel makes the Tower of Babel perhaps a prototypical ziggurat as something that people now in archaeology find, they uncover, and they say, here's what the ziggurats were all about. They were worship temples. They were temples to the heavens and to the gods. As a matter of fact, without making any Led Zeppelin references, write down stairway to heaven. They had the picture of us marching up and ascending the stairs and having things done at the top of this this stair-stepping building that was our skyscraper, but it was all for the act of us reaching up to the heavens and having the gods come down to us. Now, in the Mesopotamian, ancient Sumerian, Akkadian cultures, this is what we find, these things called ziggurats. They are, in essence, ancient temples. Therefore, when people talk about the Tower of Babel, they say, well, that's a a ziggurat. Well, if you think about it in time, it wouldn't be a copy of a ziggurat. It would really be like the first ziggurat. It would be the ziggurat that would be the one that would become a pattern of temple, the worship of of temple, the the gods, the worship of gods. Even if you look it up online and you just say, show me a picture of the Tower of Babel, oftentimes you'll see depictions like this on the screen. And and because, you know, they're not building skyscrapers with with columns. They don't look like, you know, the Twin Towers or or skyscraper downtown in LA. They're stair-stepped. This is the obvious and, and, and most obvious supported fortified way you're going to build a tower. So you start with a huge base and you move your way up. Later, if you look up in other places, let's talk about the ziggurats of the ancient Near East, you'll find pictures that look a lot like the pictures that are depicted in the Tower of Babel because people are assessing that if you're going to build a tall tower in an ancient world, you don't build it like you would build you know, the, the interstate bank building in downtown LA. You'd build it like a stair-stepping building called a ziggurat. And if you want to know what a ziggurat looks like, we got one in Laguna Niguel. Yeah. <laughs> The Chet Holyfield Federal Building is a ziggurat. And they even call it as... Do you still call it... You call it a ziggurat, right? The ziggurat. And it's a government building, so you know, you have no idea what's going on in there, really. Uh, tried to sell it. I actually said, I'm interested. I'd like to buy it. I'd like to have Compass Bible Church own that building. We may have to reshape the facade of it a little bit so we don't get accused of ancient Near Eastern God worship, but it's a little out of our price range, and I don't think they want to rezone it for a church. But even just give me half of it. We could, we could just imagine the ministry we could do in that building. That'd be awesome. All right. In 15 minutes, let's talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. Abraham was known as Abram. That was his name. He had his name changed. Sarai became Sarah. Since we're talking here about Abraham, let's talk about Abram. It meant great father. God wanted to, with a play on words, change his name to father of a great many or a great multitude. Great father was an ironic name to have when you were childless. And that's what Abraham and, or Abram and Sarai were. They were childless. And this infertile couple struggled with that. And when we meet them in this story at 75 without children, 75 and 65, respectively, Abram and Sarai, uh, their name is a bit of a reminder of the pain of not having kids. But God says, I'm going to make you a father of a great nation. So Abram, great father, turns to Abraham, father of a great many or a great multitude. God makes a covenant with them, as we said last week in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. What does he promise? He promises they're going to have a land one day. That's what they're going to do. And they're going to have it. They don't have it yet. They're going to be sojourners until they get it. They're going to have a great number of people that'll come from his lineage, his line, his descendants, and I'm going to bless them and I'm going to make you great. And I'm going to make you 
personally protected and nationally protected that those that bless you, I'm going to bless. Those who curse you, I'm going to curse. So you're going to get some real estate. You're going to get a lot of people to live in that real estate. You're going to be blessed as a nation. You're going to be great as a person. Your name was going to be great and always remembered and as it is today. I mean, you can't go anywhere in the world without hearing about Abraham, no matter what religious group you're, you're dealing with, just about. Certainly the three biggest religions in the world, or at least most historic ones. And the promise of personal and national protection. We're still dealing with a strip of, of real estate in the news. Just do a search on Israel. Do a search on Judaism. It's at the center of what's going on today. God is, still has that in his crosshairs in terms of blessing and national protection. He's called to leave Ur of the Chaldeans, and at this point, I guess we need a map to show you where this is. Mesopotamia, if you look up at the screen here, that one line, the first yellow line there that's marked number one, that is between the Tigris and Euphrates River. That is the place where the ancient civilizations were. At the base of that is what we call Ur of the Chaldeans. And Ur of the Chaldeans would turn into the Babylonian Empire at one point down the road. The Assyrians, of course, also occupied it. That's why Nineveh there is marked on the map. But if you're going to just identify these one, two, three, four, fives here, you need to see that he leaves Ur of the Chaldeans and is called up from his home. That's where he lived a long way from modern-day Israel. Uh, He has his father die, Terah dies, and he's somewhere up there in Haran, and uh, makes a trip over through uh, Carchemish isn't on there, but Aleppo, between Aleppo and Haran is ancient Carchemish. And then he goes down to Canaan. He makes his way to Canaan. But if you know the story, you know there's a famine and that sends him to Egypt. And so he's down there in Egypt and finally he makes his way back to Canaan with Lot. That's a simplified version of the travels of Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans, which is the base of the Tigris and Euphrates, uh, up through that processes. You're going to have Iran there, and and then you're going to move over through Syria and down through northern Israel and down into Egypt and then back up to what we know of as Israel. Quick travels of Abraham as though we had time. A lot of things about Abraham, though he's the great father of faith, he had a lot of faltering faith in the story of his life. Let me just give you two highlights. You remember him going down when the famine struck to Egypt, and he lies about his wife. Now, she's getting older, but she's really beautiful, and you need to remember, too, if you look at the age spans, he dies at 175, so, I mean, a 75-year-old isn't going to look like a 75-year-old today. And nevertheless, he knew that his wife was going to attract the attention of the rich and wealthy men down in Egypt, so he tells them to, he tells her to go along with his deception about Sarah. And uh, God outs him for doing that, and he's not happy with that. He should have trusted God. He didn't trust God when God said, I'm going to give you kids. Well, it was 10 years after the promise, and he says, no kids yet. God gave me a promise. I'm going to have a kid. Well, where is the kid? So he says, well, how about we have, and Sarah agrees, you know, Sarah says, why don't you have a child by Hagar, my, my maidservant? And that was another act of him not believing God. God says, no, through your own uh, marriage here with Sarah, I'm going to give you this child of promise. And the child of promise was Isaac. Isaac in Hebrew means laughter. To have a child at that age, which now was 25 years. It was 10 years when they said, well, listen, we got to make this thing happen because God's not doing it. God likes to always wait till the 11th hour, it seems, for a lot of reasons, usually to get us to trust him. Nevertheless, he's 100 years old and Sarah's 90 years old and they finally have this baby. They were made to wait 25 years. All of this was a prompt to have them trust God. God is going to put you in situations. He doesn't solve your problems the first time you ask it. I guarantee you many of the times you're meant to wait. 
wait is because God wants you to trust him. Trust him in things that right now he may be making you wait for because the thing around the corner is going to be harder for you. The problem, the challenge, the spiritual attack, he wants you to be able to trust him in that next season. So he's going to make you wait now so you can learn to trust him. I love this Hebrews chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she conceived or considered rather him faithful who had promised therefore from one man and him as good as dead thanks for that one were born descendants as many as the sand or the stars rather of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand on the seashore their faith was faltering but even as jesus liked to say if you had faith like a mustard seed they had enough faith to say well i faltered i've struggled i've stumbled but I still trust God, and God honored that faith. And he sure needed it, did he not, in Genesis 22? Genesis 22 got rough to look back on his life from Hebrews 11. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who had received the promises in the act of offering his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So you had this Ishmael through Hagar you weren't supposed to. Now, 15 years later, I finally give your own son. Now I'm going to tell you in Genesis 22, take your son, your only son, the son that you love, and go sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. And the Bible says he had enough faith to march up that mountain with his son, I assume without telling his wife what was going on. Where are you going? Just, we'll be back. Why? Because he considered God was able even to raise him from the dead. If God wants me to kill him, I guess that's what I got to do. And I suppose the promise is going to somehow going to work. Maybe he's going to raise him from the dead. I guess he's going to have to. And the writer of Hebrews says, well, figuratively speaking, he kind of did receive him back from the dead because he was as good as dead as Abraham raised that knife to kill his son. What a weird thing. Human sacrifice. They thought God was against that. Certainly it was. 600 years later when the law came through Moses, this was detestable to God. Was it? Well, sure it is. And yet we celebrate it every time we have communion, right? Human sacrifice. God takes the innocent and he frees the guilty. And the picture of that was vivid in this Rembrandt picture, one of the famous pictures of him dropping the knife as he was about to sacrifice his son. And the angel Lord stopped him. Isaac gets married, an arranged marriage. You may be thinking of an arranged marriage for your child. It's certainly biblical. It's happened. Not suggesting you do that. But if you do, look far and wide. It was a 450-mile trip for Eleazar to find a wife for Isaac and Rebecca. Rebecca, another infertile couple. Did you know that? We have not only Sarah is not having children. Rebecca's not having children. Causes a lot of fights. They went 20 years, childish years, as the Bible reports this situation. And there's a lot of pain. Then they have kids, parents of twins. Pastor PJ has a friend here, parent of twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau's the hairy one and the red one. And Jacob comes out next, grabbing his heel, the word Jacob, heel grabber. Not a lot of text about Isaac, but a few chapters. Then we get into Jacob and Rachel. Jacob's the younger twin, which doesn't make a lot of sense. He's going to continue this patriarchal line, but the custom was the older receives the birthright and the blessing, not the younger. And yet God so often, much like with the great, strong, tall leader, Saul, ends up saying, I know you picked him. I know you think he should be the one, but you know what? I'm going to pick the younger one, David. And so in this case, we have the same kind of situation, just like, you know, young people should be having kids. No, I'm going to pick an old couple and this old couple is going to have a child of the promise. God's always working through the underdog often to show that it's not by might, by power, but it's by my spirit. I get things done. You need to learn to trust me, even if it doesn't add up on paper. Jacob receives the birthright and the blessing, but if you know the story, Jacob's bribing his brother Esau out of the birthright. It wasn't a good situation. I mean, he was actually a bit conniving. Nazid is the word for stew, it's translated, which we don't know if it's a stew, soup, something boiled. 
some kind of something he was boiled. And of course, Esau comes in from the field. He's famished, and Jacob's there. Having watched the cooking channel that day, he whipped something up, and he said, listen, I'll give you some of this if you would give me your birthright, some kind of leguminous food, the lexicons say. My old Hebrew professor used to say, it had to be chili. <laughs> he said, no one would sell their birthright for stew, but for chili, I can see it. Um, so perhaps the leguminous food was chili. And of course, it's even worse when it comes to the blessing. The birthright's one thing, the legal right, the blessing is another compounded part of that inheritance. And Jacob and his mother, Rebecca, schemed together to get the blessing. Rebecca, of course, is the catalyst for this, the mastermind behind it. It doesn't create family peace and harmony. It creates a lot of family discord. Jacob runs off to Haran because he's so upset his brother Esau and was afraid he was going to be killed by Esau. So he runs off to Haran and he meets a guy named Laban, a relative of his family, and he gets a little taste of his own medicine because Laban then tricks him. He wants to marry his beautiful daughter, Rachel. The problem is he's got a little bit more homely daughter named Leah and he really wants to marry her off. So he ends up tricking Jacob and he leaves town with a rival wife, which is never a good idea. So he's got two wives and, um, You know the story. He works for 14 years to pay off that responsibility to get that wife. Joseph and his brothers. Jacob is favored, is favoring rather Joseph, and he does it to Joseph's hurt. He plays favorites in the family, and sometimes that's unavoidable, I suppose. And yet, it's not a good thing. That envy leads to him being sold. I put human trafficking just to be hip and mod and current. But Jacob favors Joseph. His brothers envy and are jealous of him, so they sell him as a Slave, and he runs off, ends up in Egypt. Joseph, of course, is used by God, transplants Joseph to Egypt so that he can end up saving the family by a prophetic revelation. He gets insight into the coming famine. Most of you know the story. If there's a famous story in Genesis, it's certainly the drama that plays out in Joseph's life. And because of the knowledge that God gives him to interpret a dream, much like Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar, Joseph ends up rising through the ranks eventually through a lot of ups and downs to come to the place where he can be promoted in Egypt. He's 17, by the way, when he's sold into slavery, heartache for his dad, and 30 by the time he was exalted into Egypt. So that was a long road. I know we read things sometimes without chronological markers, but from 17 to 30, now he's finally sitting in a throne, but he's still not in sync with his family. Pharaoh has Joseph marry, oh yeah, marry uh, Asnath, which is a daughter of an Egyptian priest, which is interesting. That priest is a priest of the sun god. The name of the priest is depicted in scripture as one who's a clear priest to the Egyptian gods. So this is an odd thing. Nevertheless, that becomes the wife of Joseph down in Egypt. Joseph and his brothers make up what we know of as the children of Israel. Israel because Jacob was renamed Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or I could say Abraham, Isaac, Israel, and Joseph. Joseph is one of the sons of Israel. When we talk about the sons of Israel, that's what we're talking about. Now, I know these are too small to probably see, but that's Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah have Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah. This is by way of review. Esau and Jacob are born. Then we got Leah and Rachel because Laban tricks him. He wants Rachel. Leah gets thrown in here as a bonus. And then what happens? Leah starts having all kinds of children, which makes Rachel upset because she's infertile as well. And so all these children are born. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, the daughter Dinah, who's part of the dramatic story. Finally, Rachel prays to God. 
And God grants two children, Joseph and Benjamin. So we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Those are the four patriarchs that take up the four stories at the end of Genesis. Well, where's the rest of the 12? Because you got 12 tribes, right? Well, I'll scoot that over. Unfortunately, much like Hagar, Leah had a handmaid called Bilhah, and they had Dan and Naphtali. And there was one more, Rachel had Zippah, and we had Gad and Asher. So all that together, I know it's way too small, but now we have the 12 tribes, but we don't. Why? Because if you remember, you had Joseph with that Egyptian priest, the daughter of the Egyptian priest, and that's Potiphar, not Potiphar. Potiphar was the priest, the priest's daughter, Asnath. They have Manasseh and Ephraim. So Joseph ends up getting a double portion in that he now has two tribes from his line, and he is not then marked in the tribes in the settlement in, in, in uh, Canaan, as we'll see. So we'll sort that out later because the 12 tribes get a little tricky. When you take Levi out, he doesn't get an allotment, becomes the priestly line. You get Joseph out because Manasseh and Ephraim take his place. And we'll figure that all out because we'll deal with the 12 tribes throughout our Old Testament survey. Let's pray. God, thanks for our time, helping us get some things in our minds that I hope have been reviewed for most and can be a refreshment for all and maybe some new information that would be helpful for some. So thanks for our time to study together. In Jesus' name, amen.